0: This is the Tribune Audio Network.
1: This is the Backstory Podcast. I'm Larry Podash. On this show, we uncover the backstory behind some of the most intriguing tales in history, culture, science, religion, and more. In this episode, we separate fact from fiction in the rise and fall of one of Chicago's most infamous figures, Al Capone. The story of Al Capone and Elliot Ness, uh, the investigator who helped bring him down, has been told in many iconic books and movies and TV shows. But as so often happens, how they remember today is a mixture of both fact and fiction. Events invented by Hollywood are remembered as if they actually happened. Luckily, a pair of researchers recently dove into the historical record, finding evidence to help us set the record straight. And some of what they found is even stranger than fiction. So let's get into the backstory of Al Capone, Elliot Ness, and the Untouchables. Most of us are familiar with the Untouchables story portrayed by De Niro as Capone, Costner as Ness. Box office numbers proved it was a success, but as a reflection of historic accuracy, it fell far short. Max Allen Collins is no stranger to the rules of Hollywood. He wrote the 2002 Chicago mob story Road to Perdition and is the author of the Dick Tracy comic strip. Why did it offend you so much the inaccuracies of the Capone movie from 87?
2: What irritates me is the sloppiness of the way the history was portrayed. I'm fine with history being tweaked and compressed and so on, but you don't throw Frank Nitti off a building when you're Elliot Ness, who was a very straight shooter, And you certainly don't change juries in the middle of a trial. You to switch the juries. Yes,
0: sir. Your Honor, I object.
2: The actual things that happened
1: were of more interest and were often more bizarre. Pop culture often embraces Scarface as just a fun-loving charitable bootlegger who ran soup kitchens for the poor. The way
2: the soup kitchen was maintained was by Capone sending his enforcers around to get free food from grocers so the idea that there was this was out of his largesse is is grossly exaggerated I think what made Capone famous and infamous was a really savvy notion of of how to do PR and a very basic notion of wanting to be
1: liked. This is one of the things that just kind of jumped out at us. In the early days, he may have indeed been viewed as just a fun-loving bootlegger, but then the Valentine's Day massacre on February 14th, 1929, seven men connected to Chicago's Northside gang were gunned down in a garage on 2122 North Clark Street. Princeton historian A. Brad Schwartz visited the brick wall from that garage, which was reassembled for the Mob Museum in Las Vegas.
0: You can still see the bullet marks. For many years it was in the uh, men's room of a Roaring Twenties themed nightclub, where the urinals were, Uh, but fortunately now it's in in a protected museum environment. So I held the bullets uh, that were taken out of the men in my hands. And I also went to the sheriff's department that confiscated um, the the guns that we know were used in the crime. And I held them. And it's remarkable how that connects you to these sorts of events that have become legendary.
1: Schwartz visited the Department of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms to shoot one. When you're actually holding
0: the gun that was was used or when you're actually seeing the wall, uh, it takes you right back to that moment. Really the secret to Capone's success, and the reason his outfit succeeds in the beer wars when others fail, is because they professionalized. They not only developed better ways of getting their beer and liquor to the public, uh, but developed better ways of killing people. So they're not going to have shootouts on city streets, they're going to have carefully staged assassinations and people staking uh, locations out so that they can develop a crossfire when the moment is right, and because they are building networks with other gangs, they're developing new ways of doing crime as a business, law enforcement has to step up. Law enforcement
1: has to professionalize itself. The Ness-Capone battle spawned innovations in crime fighting, like wiretapping. Northwestern and the University of Chicago were at the forefront of the city's virtual crime fighting lab. And while tax evasion is what brought Capone down, Ness's untouchables set the stage for his downfall. A series of raids at breweries cut off funds for Capone when he needed them the most. Ness and his untouchables paraded all of
0: the trucks that they had confiscated, the beer trucks from Al Capone, past Capone's headquarters in the Lexington Hotel. And Ness, in one of the only times they ever had direct contact, calls Capone up and says, look out your window at 11 a.m. and you'll see something interesting. And then Capone flies off the handle as he was prone to do and threatens to have Ness killed. I was sure, I would have guaranteed you that that was fictitious, because people had denied that it could have happened, that Ness was not um, having anything to do with Al Capone. Uh, so why would that be true? But we were able to find numerous sources. Uh, a prohibition agent who remembered it in an interview. Um, one of the untouchables told his family about it before Ness's book was published. All of the, the remarkable things, the wiretaps, the parade of trucks, uh, you know, the almost getting knifed when he was undercover in a saloon in
1: Chicago Heights, it all happened. They met frequently in fiction, but historians doubted they ever met in real life. Photo evidence found by Collins and Schwartz proves them wrong. Ness escorted
2: Capone to Durborn Station and put him on the train to send him to uh, prison in Atlanta. This notion that they never met, which some historians have put out there, that's false.
1: It seemed to me that Capone had really bad legal advice and legal representation.
2: Capone had almost suspiciously bad legal advice. There's really good evidence that the federal people basically, shall we say, colluded with people in the mob to put Capone away and make it seem like crime was no longer a problem in Chicago.
1: Weren't they concerned that somebody would just fill that void and replace him?
2: Yes, someone would obviously fill that void, but. That someone would not be wearing a you know, a pearl uh, hat, smoking a cigar with scars on his face and throwing the first ball out at the baseball game. They, they wanted that kind of PR off. They wanted a different face on the city of Chicago, both the government and also uh, the outfit itself, who preferred to do their business in
1: a more quiet way. Ness and Capone, opposite sides of the law, but both revolutionized their respective professions. The fact that this is a fundamentally
0: American story, that it's a fundamentally Chicago story, that even though so many of the buildings are gone, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre Garage has been torn down, the Lexington Hotel, even though the physical reminders in many cases are gone, Capone and Nest are still baked into the architecture of this city. They're both icons of this city and they will be for a long time to come.
1: Thanks for listening to Backstory. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute to subscribe to our podcast or leave a review. To watch our full coverage of this story and see some that didn't make it to the podcast, visit us online at wgntv.com/backstory. This has been a production of the Tribune Audio Network.